After reviewing the play, the call on the ice stands. We got to go. Okay, fellas, we are set to go. Let's go. We are kicking. Watch the blue. There we go. Yeah, baby. Hey, you got the power play. Get out of here. Hey. 36, right here for the rock. Both guys, five minutes each for fighting. Hey, hey. We're not doing this. I don't want to babysit all night. A little bit of nastiness today. Huh? Nothing good's coming out of this, big man. Have you seen this before? Yes, it's rule something point something. He's not putting a stick in you. You keep your stick out of him. Here we go. Let's roll, boys. Let's go. Hey, 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 hey. Let's go. After further review, it's the Scouting the Refs podcast. Here's your hosts, Todd Lewis and Josh Smith. When you're ready, big guy. All right, guys, let's drop the puck. It's spring break for some. People are traveling. Sometimes everybody gets a little sidetracked. Maybe the best example of kind of going off the, the the main road and getting a little sidetracked was a certain St. Louis Blues goaltender this past week, Josh. You know, do you know the one I mean? I think I do. I think there's a, a particular goaltender who happens to get sidetracked or or lose focus or or maybe really hyper focus on certain things that happen during the game <laughs> that might not be what you would consider the standard for a netminder not named Ron Hextall. Uh, yes, that's a, a carrying on the great tradition, perhaps, is the way we could look <laughs> yes, at it. It's carrying the torch and the blocker. Yes, yes. And uh, wanted to have others uh, see how nice his blocker was, too. We'll <laughs> get to all that and more on this edition of the Scouting the Rest podcast. Please make sure you're following us on the social channels. Follow Josh at Scouting the Refs on Twitter and Instagram. For me, it's at Todd Lewis Sports on Twitter and Instagram. Coming up on this week's episode, Tavares and Suzuki pay the price. More video reviews or what about more instigator penalties? No more fighting. Hey, that ref's a chicken. And, well... Bennington goes bonkers. I think that kind of covers a pretty wide variety there. I'm glad these were all different situations because just thinking of the, <laughs> this, the way these games have been, I wouldn't rule it out that this could all happen in one crazy National Hockey League game. But no, we got them spread out. So it was, it was nice to enjoy and appreciate all these different interesting things we've had happen over the past week. We have had some some curious moments. I, I, you're right; it wouldn't surprise us if it was in one game. But there there is one game in particular I do want to ask you about and and get into a little bit more to see if you can, I, I don't know, maybe provide a little clarity or just get your your perspective on it. So ESPN aired the NHL Big City Green game, which I had to look up to find out what exactly it meant because it's a Disney animated series and I don't watch it. So and that, and that's fine. So. I, I think this is a good idea. The The NFL does great things with its slime game. It's fantastic. If it's a path to bringing in more fans, younger fans, I think it's great. Animated series are wonderful and fantastic. The Simpsons is probably the best example of that. So, so why not? I think we're, we're maybe onto something here that it could be good. I do have one issue that I'm kind of curious about, and it puzzles me. How on earth... Did they decide in the Big City Green game that the referee should be a chicken? I have no idea how that determination was made. I'm guessing because of the the farm connection of the, the Green family that lives on the farm there. And you have to have some sort of character in there. And they opted not to go with a zebra. Although I did see that there was a zoo escape during the game. So lots of animals were in attendance. However, 
I guess the chicken was the most qualified one on the farm to officiate the game. I will say, Todd, mm-hmm. the chicken did an admirable job dropping the puck and then poof, gone, getting out of the way. So uh, well done, chicken, for staying out of the action. Right. And, and OK, <laughs> that's fine, staying out of the action. But I, but I mean, this was the golden opportunity to have our animated mascot, Refi, yes. join in and participate. And I, how did they miss this? How, how would everyone miss this? This was a glorious opportunity. Refi would have been the perfect fit there. And a literal zebra makes the most possible sense on the ice there. I mean, yeah, it might be a little large and get in the way. And of course, getting around the players might be a bit of a challenge. But yes, this would have been the great Great opportunity to to put Refi on a national broadcast in front of everyone and, and maybe get him a cameo on the TV show as well. See, I, and that's it. So maybe after, you know, you do the review after the first time. So maybe this is our chance next year to get him in for round two. So let's let's cross our fingers and hope that this takes place. We will. We will do that. And we'll also try to rally the NHL Officials Association because I'm I'm not sure if refs Garrett Rank and Francis Sharon really appreciated that they are being represented by a chicken on national yeah. TV. <laughs> That's uh, that's that that's one that kind of puzzled me. Okay, let's get to the dollars and cents of this edition. John Tavares was fined five thousand dollars for a big time slash on Edmonton Oilers defenseman Vincent Deraney in a game this past week. He certainly got his money's worth. There was a little hacking and whacking going along by both, um, and a few expletives flew en route to the penalty box. But Tavares did give him a very fine, worthy slash. I would suggest. Yeah, that was a rough one. He got his money's worth. That's one of those ones that could result in a, a pretty bad injury. You get that spot right between the glove and, and the arm pad there, right on the wrist. It can be a, a very dangerous spot to take a slash, and Tavares delivered. You know, that was a full-on two-hander. I can see the fine for it. It's hard to say that this rose to the level of justifying a suspension, but they both got minor penalties on the play. I think Tavares maybe earned his a little bit more. We did have DeHarnay with some cross-checks and, you know, a, a battle. And I think typically you'll let the guys play and the officials would let these guys go at it maybe you get matching minors but certainly i thought Tavares crossed the line there surprised he didn't get a little bit more on the play because that was definitely stepping it up from what deharnay was delivering in front of the crease definitely was and that seemed to be how the game was officiated is that there were battles then went back and forth back and forth and then offsetting minors were handed out i don't know two or three times in this one but anyhow i i do think that Tavares was was definitely uh needed to pay a bit of a price there and the price was five thousand dollars not quite as severe for montreal canadians captain nick suzuki as the panthers were putting a beat down on montreal um he was asked to leave the game by game misconduct felt he should still participate and got himself uh, cross-checking penalty on Anton Lundell and player safety has fined him $2,500, the maximum allowable under the CBA, of course. Yeah, this one's, I mean, the call itself was a no-brainer. You've got Pierre Lambert with his arm up already on the call, and and here he comes delivering a, a nice high cross-check. So you're getting tossed from the game for that one. So five and a game misconduct for Suzuki. And I, I figured seeing the play that the fine was absolutely going to be coming. This is one of the situations where you've got an incident after the whistle. I think the NHL looks sometimes at suspensions, but I think they're they're pretty consistent with hitting a fine for something that was away from the play or something like this. You've got a dangerous situation away from the play, nothing to do with hockey. You want to send the message that if nothing else, we're not going to tolerate this. I can see the fine, even for both of these, for Tavares as well. But the threshold for that one game, 
it seems like it's pretty steep. At the same time, you have two dangerous situations, two two moments that could have caused a player to be injured or out for an extended period of time. And I don't think either the, the Tavares or especially the Suzuki play, I don't think I could have fought it if they went with a game for either one of these, but but particularly Suzuki. I'd be okay with it. And I, again, that goes to the, the level of punishment that most are willing to accept, be it the players, the players association, the, the teams and ownership and general managers and, and the public, I guess. And this is where they're coming down. But if, if everything went up a notch, I'd be, I'd be absolutely okay with that. And you'd think the players association would feel the same way. I, I know they're going to defend Suzuki and they'll, they'll fight for him to just get a fine in this case. But you would think that Lundell deserves some protection here and they'd be sticking up for him to say, look, you, you can't go after your own union mates like that and we need to draw the line here and say look we we won a game because you could be depriving this guy of his livelihood or or possibly his next contract or something like that so i'm surprised the players association doesn't push back harder to say look we we do need to start to ramp this up a little bit and and put some suspensions out there when you have a guy's ability to play at potential risk by what's happening on the ice we do have one suspension to talk about, and we'll do that in just a couple of minutes. I want to ask about a very weird play that occurred in a game between the Ottawa Senators and the Colorado Avalanche. The The puck gets shot out of the Avalanche zone. It goes by the pinching defenseman, and the puck settles in front of the Ottawa Senators' crease, and everybody is kind of standing around and waiting for the whistle, believing that the play is icing, but there is no whistle it looked like the Senators goaltender, Mats Sogard, covered the puck up, but there was still no whistle. So Lars Eller figured, heck, I'm going to bang it in. And he did. And the goal counted. This in spite of the Senators challenging for, for goaltender interference. I, it, it was a very confusing play. It really, it really confused Mike Johnson, who was working as an analyst on the, on the play. Can, can you provide clarity to this situation? <laughs> I, I hope so. I mean, we don't know the ins and outs of how everything went. I was, uh, first off, I'll say I was surprised by the challenge, but let's, let's look at it in order. There was initially the icing call. So we have what would be a possible icing. We've got the linesman's arm up. We've got the goaltender with his arm up, indicating to his defenseman that it's an icing. The puck caroms off the backboards and Sogard goes to play it. So once he's making either a play on the puck or an attempt to play the puck or even a motion that he's going to play the puck, icing can be waved off. So it looks like that's what happened in here. So that negates the icing call. So that's why we don't get the initial whistle. That's why we still have a live puck. That's not reviewable. That's that's the call on the ice by the officials real time. So no icing on the play. So now we have the goaltender stopping the puck and covering it. I do think he covered it long enough where it, you would expect that the whistle gets blown. However, Freddie Lacouille right behind the net there did not. So whether he was looking to give a beat or two while he moved position to see if the puck was still free or just allowing another moment, I can't imagine he saw the puck free because it was right along the leg pad there. He delays on blowing the whistle. It's still a live puck. you got to play to the whistle. And we've seen quick whistles. We've seen goals lost because the official blows his whistle right away and people are furious. This is probably one of the few times we've had a, a delayed whistle actually result in a goal. Usually it's it's wax and chops and slashes at the goaltender and everybody takes exception. But seeing such a delayed whistle result in a goal result in a goal is something I don't recall, especially to this level. So he doesn't blow the whistle. You got to play till the whistle, even if you think it should be covered, even if you've got your glove over it until that whistle sounds, it's a live puck. And I mean, I, Eller was just camped out there. It was really smart of him to to be aware <laughs> and to give it a shot. I mean, I, I know typically guys don't want to be jerks and knock the puck in after the whistle, but he, he didn't hear the whistle either, so he kept playing it. I, I can't fault Eller on the play. I 
can uh, have to say that Ottawa needs to make sure they're playing until the whistle. And that means the players. That means the goaltender. Don't assume that the whistle is going to sound until you actually hear it. Um, so it was it was an interesting play, Todd. It was one that was very unusual. I think this just came down to expectations of what would be happening on the play rather than waiting for the actual sound of the whistle. But challenging it. Um, I was a little surprised by the challenge. I looking at the contact there, you've you've got the stick on the pad. So maybe they're thinking that he had the puck covered or he had it against his pad and it was Eller who pushed the goaltender into the net, which would be considered goaltender interference on the play. Wasn't the case. Looked like the puck was just next to him. The goaltender lets up on the puck. It's loose for a moment and and he puts it in. So, ah, man, it was such a weird moment. And then to end yeah. up shorthanded on the failed challenge just adds insult to injury on that play. It, it it is one of the strangest ones I have seen, and perhaps the the referee uh, Frederick Lecouillet was thinking that uh, Sogar did have an opportunity to play the puck, so they won't blow the whistle right away if they feel that there is an opportunity to for the goaltender to safely move the puck. Yeah, that's it's definitely a factor. I know there are situations when you don't have an opposing player within a certain distance of the goal that they'll call for you to move it or they'll expect yeah. you to move it at risk of a delay of game penalty, but. Certainly a factor there. Just one of those things of you've got to be aware of your surroundings and you've got to be aware of the whistle. There's the challenge again was only for the goaltender interference. There can't be anything looking at, well, should the puck have been covered up or was there a whistle or anything like that? It's there's no way to do anything about that portion of it. So it's live until the whistle sounds. And in this case, it never did. And it cost the Ottawa Senators a goal and eventually the game. Okay, general managers meetings have taken place. The March meetings usually come and go without anything really major happening. But there were some discussions about rules and penalties and implementation. So maybe we should kind of look at a couple of things here. Like video review for high-sticking minor penalties was one of the topics. The current situation has referees allowed to review double minors and major Major penalties. Is this a path we want to go down, reviewing minor penalties for high sticking and the like? Oh, I think we start to get into the slippery slope here if we look at those. The criteria or the standard the NHL has used, and I think it's a logical one, is basically around injuries. If we've got a major penalty, if we've got a match penalty, if we have a high stick that caused an injury. So the threshold for reviews now on penalties are ones that caused injury. I think... If anything, I'd rather see them expand reviews to allow a play where a guy was injured and maybe there was no penalty call that we can take a look at that and say, did we miss something here? But looking at a minor penalty for high sticking, holy cow, if this is a coach's challenge, you're going to get a lot of challenges. You're going to get a lot of high sticking calls because we've had, I think it's over 750 so far this year for high sticking minors. They happen so frequently that I, I'm concerned that we're building in a challenge that is going to be something that happens far, far too often. And even the delay of, well, let's take a look at it or let's challenge or even let's wait for the coach to decide to challenge. So to me, Todd, this is a potential for a whole lot of delays. The only thing I ask of the NHL, if they're going to move forward with a high sticking minor review, and I'm against it, I'm, I'm against the minor penalty mm -hmm. reviews. I think they're you're going to win some and lose some there. And I think it evens out. We need to put a shot clock on the coach's challenge. We need to tell them if there's a penalty for high sticking, the guy's going to the box. You've got 30 seconds. You've got 20 seconds to decide if you want to challenge that penalty because we can't let it drag out any longer than absolutely necessary. So if the NHL wants to open the door to these hundreds of possible coaches challenge reviews for a minor penalty, we're going to need to put a shot clock on it and, and maybe a review clock as well. 
And that's the sticking point, it seems, is that nobody wants over 700 penalties reviewed every time that an arm goes up in the air. So that's why they're going to look and investigate and gather more information on that. And, and that makes sense. The, the other one that is being considered, apparently, is the, the puck over glass situation. Because, again, you don't want to unfairly penalize a team and and give them a two-minute minor if this the puck does glance off the glass or the netting or something. I, I get it, and I think it would be a great way to get the call right every time. I don't know, Todd. Are we solving for the wrong root cause here? Instead of reviewing puck over glass, can we just consider treating it like an icing and then maybe put in a flag that if they do it again in a short duration of time, if they do it again without clearing the defensive zone, or if it, it's adjudged intentional by the officials that then we issue a penalty? Because again, I, I don't want to see every puck over glass getting reviewed, and I think many of them would. Even then, you know, we've seen them clip the top where it's so hard to tell. Can we just get the puck tracking to tell puck us? Puck tracking, puck tracking, yep. Definitively, <laughs> it was or wasn't over. Then we don't have to do a review. And I, I don't even know if I love the idea of the situation room taking a look. Hey, the puck went over the glass. Let's have them see if it should be a penalty or not. I feel like we're splitting hairs there. And, and I I want to get the call right every time. But man, is this is this even a call we should be making? It starts to make me question how to what end we're going to go to get puck over glass right when maybe maybe we should just consider if we should be calling it at all. Yes. The other one that was discussed a little bit is players being forced to fight after clean body checks are delivered. And I think this one's interesting. And because of some of the stats that were thrown out, I think we may see more instigator penalties being called. And I'm good with that, quite frankly. I have no issue with them calling more instigator penalties. It's already in the rule book. They don't need to make any changes or tweaks or anything. The instigator rule considers application of that penalty to a player going after another for an incident earlier in the game, for a hit on a teammate, for something even earlier in the season, other interactions. So there's a lot of criteria that can already be applied there. I think the hard part here is the fights after a clean check. You're putting that filter on on are, we're allowing fights after a dirty check that that that's OK. <laughs> but yeah. I think I think the idea, though, of saying, look, you can legally hit a guy and and because you deliver a punishing legal body check, you shouldn't be subject to a fight. And if you are, and it's coming from an instigator on the opposing team, then it should be penalized accordingly. And I think that's great. I think it's already there. I think they can start doing that one today because there's no change to the rulebook, just a change to the enforcement standard. So I think that's a good call. I think we see far too many fights after legal plays. And I'm not expecting everyone to know you know, the guys on the bench aren't worried as much of if it's legal or illegal. They're just seeing their guy get blown up and they want to go stick up for a teammate. So I get it. But I, I think if we want hitting to be part of the game, we need to separate the hitting from the fighting part and just enjoy a clean legal hit. Take a number and, uh, you know, put a pounding on the guy later on. Yes, I, I, I think you said it very nicely there. There was one other little tidbit that I heard that apparently this uh, this this would certainly address uh, fans and many who suggest that refs are not being held accountable for a call that gets missed or or not enough punishment being uh, being put out in a particular play. Apparently, there was a video shown at the GM meetings that kind of tracked Wes McCauley, and a video showed him operating through the day, the, the logistics and the travel that they go through and how officials operate, but also the amount of conversation and discussion and feedback 
that referees and linesmen get from supervisors, from the league. Not just after games or before games, but actually during games between periods. I think if we release this video, we'll have a lot of people understanding a lot better how this operates. I, again, I think the league is doing a tremendous job behind the scenes to kind of put that out there. And it would be lovely for them to be able to share it with the public to understand that there's not just this this black hole where the officials show up, do their job and leave. They're constantly interacting with league officials, team officials. There's feedback going back and forth. They have coaching. They have feedback from their bosses. So there's all times throughout the day, they're getting feedback. They're talking to people. They're planning things. They're having conversations. It doesn't happen in a bubble. These guys are not just showing up and leaving. So communication between the officials and everybody else involved is something that's ongoing. They are getting feedback and they are, from a hockey ops standpoint, being held accountable for things. Just because they're not answering questions post-game doesn't mean that there aren't discussions happening behind the scenes and that these things aren't taking place, whether it's internal to hockey ops and the officials or even with the teams to explain certain situations and calls. I would love for us to get a peek into how that works in situations on a day-to-day -day basis, but even just seeing the Macaulay video would be wonderful to give you an idea and to give everybody else some understanding of what life is like for an official and how they are accountable. And there is communication and there is discussion happening between the teams. So it's not just them showing up, them all hopping in a car together and, and getting out of Dodge before, the, <laughs> before the, the team officials even come out of the room. We love these behind-the-scenes videos. We got a great taste of it with Marc-Andre Fleury, who was mic'd up in the Minnesota-St. Louis game and almost had us a goalie fight between Fleury and Jordan Binnington. Uh, the Blues netminder was up to his shenanigans again. Ryan Hartman scored the fifth goal of the night on Binnington midway through the second period. And as he was skating by the crease, he kind of accidentally bumps him. Bennington, I guess, didn't see it that way or felt that he was going to put a beat down on Hartman regardless and came charging toward him, blocker and stick first. And, well, the melee ensued and Marc-Andre Fleury charged up the ice. The, the video was really funny, by the way. And and they never did, did get together. The, the, the linesmen, uh, Ryan Galloway and David Breesbaugh, kept them apart. But Bennington was ejected from the game had a hearing with the Department of Player Safety and was given a two-game suspension in addition to his match penalty and ejection from that game. At first, I'm a little surprised that he got two games, but I also think it's a bit of a message to Jordan Bennington to say, hey, stop behaving like a jackass out there. Yeah, I think this is a good example of player safety looking at a guy's complete history because he's not been fined or suspended before, but he obviously has a reputation for behavior on the ice and maybe crossing the line a little bit here and there. It's never risen to a level of supplemental discipline. So I think that was part of the consideration as well as the circumstances surrounding this. We saw Phoenix Copley of the Kings get kicked out for a blocker punch earlier this season against the Ducks. That was an altercation in the crease. You had two guys, you had a scrum. It was a, a bit more understandable of, of how that came together. Still against the rules, still gets tossed, but no suspension on the play. This one, man, you got a goal celebration and the goalie just comes crashing in, still holding his goal stick with the blocker, delivering a punch. So I think the nature of the fact that this was not only outside of gameplay, but this was a, a goal celebration where there was no expectation that this was going to happen and uh, just a, an entire overreaction on Bennington's part. And, and I think you're right. It's sending a message to him and everybody else of Look, we're going to tolerate probably more than we should during the game and even 
after the whistle, but when a goal scored or in between periods or after games, those are really off limits. And we're expecting guys to be on better behavior than Bennington was in this one. Yeah, I think it was an appropriate, certainly an appropriate punishment. Again, I was a little surprised that the, he got two, but I I think that everybody's pretty good with that. So now the, the only thing is I don't, <laughs> I have zero confidence that Bennington will learn his lesson from this oh, or yeah. change his style of play. That's It's gotten him this far, so I, I guess he's good with it. Blues fans are good with it. I know his coach was good with it. He defended him. He said he understands where it's coming from, knows it's going to be a match penalty all day long. But I think we can expect to see more fireworks from Bennington. I don't think he'll change his style. We did not see the goalie fight in this particular instance, and we may not see any fighting at all in the QMJHL if they continue through after ratifying a rule that will ban fighting in the queue. Um, there's been extreme punishments uh, put in place. Um, they have not been decided exactly yet how this will be enforced, but it looks like at their next meeting in June, the queue is going to say no more fighting beginning next year. And I'm, I'm good with that because I don't, I don't think minor leagues and junior hockey should be fighting. I think they should, you know, more harshly punish funding in the NHL, but that's another story, but I'm okay with banning fighting in the queue. I think you you have to look at the goal of the league in general, right? We, we look at developmental leagues and we look at places where you have junior hockey, you've got kids and They're working as hard as they can to improve their skills, their abilities to make it to the NHL level. You're not going to make it to the NHL as a fighter. There were days in the past when throwing fists could be enough to get you a call up to the bigs, but we're not there anymore. You have to contribute a full game. And yes, there's an aspect at the NHL level that's physical and there's a, a smaller aspect that relates to fighting. But at the junior level, I don't think they need to prove that. And I think you're looking at the potential for risk, the potential for injury, whether it's head injury or other injuries. And it's... It's detracting from the focus of these guys working as their goal to be professional hockey players. Fighting is a part of the professional game. It doesn't need to be part of the amateur game. It's dangerous. It puts these guys in tough spots. We look at other leagues that have fighting bans. Internationally, obviously, there's no fighting. But even at the college hockey level in the U.S., we don't have fighting. And those guys are making it to the NHL. And many of them are fighting at the NHL level. So it's obvious that you can make it to the NHL. You can even be a fighter at the NHL without having fought at a junior level. So I I get where they're coming from with this. I think given the ages of the folks in the queue, you're you're looking at kids, you're looking at younger prospects. I think it makes sense, Todd. And I, I'm I'm not anti-fighting. I just think where it's appropriate or where it fits in and, and how it improves or enhances or ties back to the game is important. And and maybe at the junior level, it, it doesn't quite do that. It's funny sometimes how, how the hockey fan thinks, because there are some that are going to say that, oh, we want fighting, but we don't want video review. So I don't know. It's all kind of puzzling to me. <laughs> Get in the box. It's the Scouting the Refs podcast. Read more at scoutingtherefs.com. Follow Scouting the Refs on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Scouting the Refs. Email the show at heyref at scoutingtherefs.com. Subscribe, share, and keep those sticks down. Okay. That's a nice lead on. That's good play.